what I've done is I've just I've built this presentation around the um, around the guidelines for writing essays that I uh, hand out in some of my classes. Um, so that's what I'm going to be working through. It's a little different this time because, I mean, I'm going to be I'm going to be reading uh, your essays. I'm going to be giving you feedback on your essays. Um, etc. But I'm not going to be um, evaluating your essays in the normal way. I.e., I'm not um, I'm not giving you um, A, B, C, D grades on your on your essays. You get full points for your essays if you if you do the work, right? Um, but nonetheless, we're we're I guess the goal is to um, get you to evaluate your essays um, and to get you to evaluate your peers' essays. I want to I want to give you a set of tools for thinking about your own writing um, and the writing of your peers so that you can um, constructively and critically um, work on your own writing and um, give um, good feedback to to um, the members of your group. We're going to revisit some of this stuff um, after a while. After everybody has turned in their drafts, um, I'm going to I'm going to have a few instances where I take um, bits from people's drafts that I think are useful to talk about and 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 either make posts on Slack about them or or use them as examples um, in the lecture to talk about things that. Um, I think people could work on or things that I think people are doing really well, um, et cetera. I've also posted a few ex exemplary essays from previous iterations of this class on my courses. Um, so you can look there uh, for those. They are um, exemplary essays. They're not perfect essays. Um, and so we'll we'll be working through some passages in a few of those in a couple of those essays um, today in the in the presentation. And you'll see, I, I have plenty of criticisms of uh, different aspects of those essays. But nonetheless, I think as a whole, they're very successful essays. Um, they're essays that do um, at least one thing very, very well, um, and don't do anything very, very poorly. They're, they're successful essays. And so they're worth, they're worth looking at and worth trying to learn from. So when I'm evaluating essays, I'm looking at six things, um, basically. Um, first of all, I'm looking at the introduction. Uh, the introduction is actually an incredibly important part of the essay. Um, and uh, so I wanna, I'm actually gonna spend a fair bit of time talking about introductions. Introductions and conclusions um, are actually the parts of the essays that you should write last. That's the very last thing you write because in order to write a good introduction, you have to know very well everything that comes after. Because the introduction is the place where you tell your reader what to expect from what they're about to write, read. It's the place where you pull them in, um, you tell them what you're going to be talking about, what, why it's worth caring about, and you set expectations for them. Um, that then your essay is going to hopefully meet. Um, and so I think it's very important that um, you write the introduction last, along with the conclusion. Those are the places where 
you can only know what go really goes there once you have the whole essay written. Uh, the second thing I look at is just the quality of the thesis. We'll talk about this um, in greater detail. Uh, the thesis is the, you know, it's the main claim that you're making and trying to defend. It actually comes from Greek. Thesis is um, something like, it means like a stand. And it's actually old military terminology that uh, uh, when you make a stand in battle um, or you, you know, you try to hold a hill, that's a thesis. It's the ground that you take and try to defend. Um, and so it's important that you choose your thesis well um, and articulate it carefully so that you can defend it. Third, I look at just the overall coherence of the essay. Um, and that's going to be a lot about the structure and narrative of the essay as a whole. Um, we'll talk about that more. Um, fourth, I examine and evaluate the, the cogency and the soundness of the argument. Um, in some ways, that's the most important, that's the skeleton of the essay. That's the thing that, um, and it's also, oddly, it's kind of the musculature of the, of the essay, too. It's what drives the essay forward um, is the argument. Um, so we'll be talking about that. Um, fifth, this is very important for me. Um, I evaluate the general understanding of the texts um, and the arguments that are discussed in the essay. That is basically, are you fair to and reasonable about the text that you're responding to? Um, is your understanding of what you're talking about defensible? Um, and do you um, find evidence for the claims that you're making? And then sixth, and this is the most boring thing, just the mechanics of it. Uh, you know, how, how are the grammar and the syntax and the spelling? These things are in some ways the least important, but um, grammar and syntax are actually quite important in the sense that how your sentences are put together uh, matters a great deal for how understandable they are um, and how clear um, the claims are that you're making. So I'm just gonna, we're just gonna work through this list. I'm gonna spend some more time on some of these things today than others. Um, I'm gonna be spending quite a bit of time talking about the introduction because that'll allow us to talk about several other things. And then I'm gonna be spending quite a bit of time talking about argument. Um, so what do I look for uh, in an introduction? I think fundamentally I look for four things uh, in an introduction. I look for, I think, a good introduction, first of all, introduces the issue that the essay is going to be discussing. Um, second, it clearly states the thesis, uh, tells you what ground the essay is going to be defending. Third, it talks about the, the significance of the issue. Um, you know, it, just, it says something that um, indicates why what you're talking about is important. And then third, it gives you, it sets expectations. It gives you some sort of roadmap to what you're going to be encountering. So in order to talk about these, I wanna look at a couple of examples. So the, both of these come, both of the examples that we're gonna be looking at come from the model essays that I put up. So the, the first example, this is the introduction to a paper on, uh, on about Calicles argument in the Gorgias. I'm just going to read the, the introduction here. In Plato Gorgias, Callicles, a young rhetorician, 
argues that it is just that the leader should take by force what belongs to the inferior, that the better should rule the worse, and the more worthy have a greater share than the less worthy. This thesis is compelling of its own, since one can reasonably argue that, explicitly or not, it is agreed upon in most political societies. It is notably at the core of capitalism. Callicles' particular argument for the thesis is compelling for its specificity and precision and its reliance on relevant references. I will summarize the argument, present a strong objection to it, and finally show how Callicles could respond to that objection. Now, what I've done here is I just want to take this apart. I think this, this introduction does all four things that I'm looking for in an introduction. It tells you right away what the issue is. It's Callicles' claim, right? That's what that's what the essay is going to be concerned with. It's going to be taking part and and explaining at Callicles' uh, claim that's quoted in the first sentence. Second, it tells you what the thesis is. Basically, it's um, the the thesis of the essay is a defense of Callicles' thesis. The thesis of the essay is that Callicles' thesis is compelling on its own and that his argument for the thesis is compelling. So that's the that's going to be what the, the essay is going to argue for. Third, it tells you the significance. It tells you that this is significant because um, one could reasonably argue that it is agreed upon in most political societies. Um, so it's that that's the gesture towards the significance of Callicles' thesis. And finally, in the last sentence, it gives you some set of expectations about how the essay is going to proceed and what you're going to encounter in the essay. Like I said, like I think overall this essay is a very good essay, but it's not a perfect essay. And I actually think there are a number of shortcomings in this uh, introduction. Um, and I, I want to talk about some of those shortcomings. But in order to talk about them, I want to compare them. I want to compare this introduction to another introduction, uh, one from one of the other model essays. So here's the second introduction I want to look at. This introduction says, Socrates concludes book nine by indicating that, quote, the city whose foundation we have now gone through, the one that has its place in speeches, is merely a pattern for the man who wants to see and found a city within himself. Close quote. This passage explicitly concludes the city-soul analogy present through the Republic in books two to um, nine that has been used to illuminate the questions of justice. I argue that Socrates' statement in the above quote tells us that the city-soul analogy is designed by Socrates to have implications for the soul alone. Although political questions do reveal themselves throughout the text, and thus Socrates does offer political lessons within the Republic, I argue the city-soul analogy itself is designed to magnify the soul through the city for examination of the soul, not the city and soul together. So I've done the same thing here. I think this, this introduction also hits all four bases. It tells you what the issue is, that is, we're going to be examining this claim by, of Socrates from the end of book nine. Talks about the significance of that claim, right? That that uh, that the passage, in some sense, it concludes um, Socrates' argument. Um, third, it definitely tells you what the thesis is, right? The this author is going to argue that Socrates 
um, designs the city soul analogy simply to um, um, illuminate the soul. Um, and finally, it sets up some expectations. It doesn't do so in quite the same way that the other um, uh, introduction does. It doesn't say, I'm going to do this and this and this and this, but it does give you a preview of the argument. It says that um, although political questions reveal themselves in the text, um, I argue that the city soul analogy only um, designed to magnify the soul, right? So it, it, without saying, first, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, it tells you what to expect from what comes next. In particular, I want to now, I want to compare these two. And I think I, I like the second uh, introduction better than the first. Um, and I want to talk about why that is. And I think it really comes down to the last sentences. Like both of them do certain things well, and, and both of them, you know, as I said, both of them hit the basis. Um, but when I think you can look at the last two sentences, uh, or the last sentence of each paragraph, and you can really notice a difference between the two introductions. So the last sentence of the first introduction says, I will summarize the argument present a strong objection to it, and finally show how Callicles could respond to that objection. Now that tells me what they're going to do, but it doesn't tell me anything particular about what they're going to do, right? All it gives me are empty placeholders for the parts of the essay that are going to follow. It says, I will summarize the argument. Okay, which argument? How are you going to summarize it? It doesn't tell you. I will present a strong objection to it. Okay, what objection, right? It doesn't name the objection. It just says there's gonna be one and it's gonna be a strong one, right? And finally, I will show how Callicles could respond to that objection. There's no qualitative preview of what that response is going to be. It's just a placeholder. Now contrast that with the other, with the second essay uh, introduction. That uh, introduction ends with this sentence, although political questions do reveal themselves throughout the text, and thus Socrates does offer political lessons within the Republic, I argue the city-soul analogy itself is designed to magnify the soul through the city for examination of the soul, not the city and soul together, right? That tells you it, without naming, without saying, first, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, it too says, I'm going to entertain an objection. But it doesn't say, I'm going to entertain an objection. It tells you what the objection is, right? It says, although political questions reveal themselves throughout the text, and thus Socrates does offer political lessons within the Republic, that's an objection to the thesis, right? Um, and then it tells you how the author is going to respond to that objection. It doesn't just say, I will respond to this objection. It says, I'm going to argue that the city-soul analogy um, is designed only to uh, examine the soul, right? So I, like, it's not perfect. Uh, there's still some clunky bits to this and so forth, but I think the second um, essay gives me a much stronger, um, indication of what to expect um, going forward. 
than the first one did. And that's one of the things that I think um, I would encourage you to think about. It's always better to say what you're saying than to say, I'm going to say something, right? Um, I think uh, what I like about the second um, introduction is that it it doesn't leave any blanks. It actually fills in um, those blanks with content. Okay, so that's a way of talking about um, what I like about a good a good introduction um, and what I think a, a common error in introductions is. Um, so now let's talk a little bit uh, about the thesis because that's one of the things that the introduction is supposed to tell the reader. Like, here's the thesis. Here's what I'm going to be arguing. Here's what I'm going to try and show you, right? This is the central claim that I want to make. I want to, this is the explanation I want to offer, right? So the question is, how do you evaluate a thesis? And this is important. This is like, of course, I evaluate theses. Um, it's part of what I do as a teacher, but like as a writer, this is the single most important thing I think that you can uh, work on as a writer, uh, as a writer of academic uh, pieces, right? Um, academic essays. Having a good thesis is incredibly important. It's also like the introduction, it's not something that you're going to have right away at the beginning of your writing. A good thesis is something that you arrive at somewhere in the middle of your writing. So if the, if the introduction is the last thing you write, the thesis is something you should discover about halfway through because you have to write for a while in order to figure out what exactly the argument is that you're making. What's the really central claim? And then once you've discovered what the real central claim is, then you have to rewrite everything that you have already written in order to um, bring that central claim to the center where it belongs, okay? When I'm evaluating theses, I ask three major questions, right? First of all, is the thesis controversial? Okay, this is uh, important because if someone can't reasonably disagree with your thesis, then it's not worth defending, right? No one wants to contest the ground that you're standing on. So why would you defend it, right? If you're defending something that everybody would admit, then you've given yourself too easy of a job, right? The point is to, is to say something controversial, to say something that someone might disagree with. And not just something that someone might disagree with, but someone something that someone might have reason to disagree with. And I think that's that's the uh, really important thing, right? Can people reasonably disagree? Can they are there is there evidence for and against what it is that you're saying? Right. We're going to come back to that point. Second, I ask, you know, does the thesis focus on something worthy of consideration or significant, right? This one is a little trickier, right? Um, like whether something is controversial is something that um, you can pretty objectively measure, right? You can say, well, look, 
there are like I can formulate objections to this thesis, right? I can think of reasons why people would not believe this. With significance, significance is more in the eye of the beholder. But I do think it's important to think about why do you think this is an important thing? Why do you think this is worth defending? Not just defensible, but worth defending. What are the stakes of defending the particular claim that you want to make? Right? I have asked you in these, um, in these portfolio essays to explain something. I think it's always worth asking, well, you know, is what you're explaining worth explaining, right? Is this something that um, people are going to find interesting and important and worth reading about? And if not, or if that importance is not obvious, then you might want to think about, well, you know, what reasons would you give them to read what you're saying, right? Um, why, what would you say to them if someone said, well, why would I bother reading that? What would the reasons be that you would give to say, no, this is worth paying attention to. This is actually an important point. Obviously in a class, um, this is different from, you know, uh, you know, writing for just the public at large, right? Um, you can take it for granted that everyone in the class, and in particular, me, um, that we are interested in things that have to do with the text that we're reading, right? So you can take our interest for granted to a certain extent. Um, but, um, but I still think it's important to offer some justification for, for why what you're saying is important. And finally, I ask, uh, you know, whether the thesis is new in some sense, not, not completely new. Obviously you're not, uh, we're not, you know, at the cutting edge of science here. We're not discovering wholly new things. What I, but what I do want is for it to be yours, right? The thesis should be original to you. It should be something that you are saying. If you are merely repeating the views of someone else, right? Whether that's Plato or Aristotle, or whether it's a secondary uh, source that you found somewhere, then it's not really you that's talking, right? I want, I want you to find a way to make what you're saying your own. So the third criterion that I look for, uh, or the third things that I, that I evaluate is the coherence of the essay. How does it all hang together, right? Um, and some of this stuff is fairly mechanical in the sense that, you know, I don't want to be lost in the middle of your essay, right? Um, you should think about, you know, making sure that your reader knows at every point where they are um, in, the, in the argument um, and that they know, you know, what has happened and what's going to happen next, right? So some of this is just a matter of signposting. But I think there's, there's more to it than that. Um, and that is the, the paper should have the essay should have a sort of narrative structure. Um, and that means it shouldn't just read like a list, right, <laughs> of things that are dis otherwise disconnected. Um, and so there are other times when you're asked as a student just to reproduce as much information as possible, right? You might have an in-class um, test where it's just like, you know, tell us about this. And you just like put down as many true things as you can think of, right, uh, in a sort of stream of consciousness. 
an essay should not be do that, right? An essay should be composed and composed means that it has different parts that are related to one another in a sort of organic way. I think the most important part of that is, or one of the most important parts of that is that the different parts of your text have to be related to one another um, internally. That means that there has to be some sort of necessity, some sort of argumentative compulsion to move on to the next part of the essay. That's what makes for a really good essay. That's what makes for a compelling reading. Reading is compelling when each sentence and each paragraph sort of drive you on to the next one. A common error that students make in writing is that they start each paragraph with a then or a next and think that that's all they need for in order to hang one paragraph off of the off of the previous one right so i've discussed this next i'm going to discuss this right or now it's time to talk about this other thing right and what that what those uh conjunction words signal i think is that there's just kind of a, a temporal succession of elements, right? So the, the old clan, I've got it in the hand, you know, history is just one damn thing after another, right? Things just happen one after another, but there's no, there's no logic to them. There's no internal thing necessitating the move from one to the next. It's just time passing, right? If that's how you feel like your structure, your your essay is structured, right? If it just feels like one thing after another, I want you to instead try to structure your your argument and your paper um, using then using therefore not just to mark change, but to mark the the unfolding of implications, right? Everything in your paper should happen for a reason it ought to be like this wonderful process of discovering what was implicit in your starting point uh, as you go on. Okay. Um, next, <laughs> the, here, this is just temporal succession. Uh, so the, 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 I think the fourth, the fourth element that I uh, evaluate is just the cogency and soundness of the argument. Because it's that's what's making the that's what's providing the compulsion, right? So that's what is actually driving your essay forward is the argument itself. The types of arguments that you can put into your paper can you know you can put all sorts of arguments. This slide has a few examples which you can look over later. Um, the what kind of arguments you're making, whether you're making a so-and-so was right for the following reasons or so-and-so was wrong for the following reasons, regardless of what kind of argument you're making, um, the important thing is that you are communicating to your reader a sort of normative compulsion to follow your train of thought. So what does that mean? Um, we all think things, we think all sorts of things, but 
sometimes we think that other people should think the same thing that we do, right? And that happens in lots of different contexts. But like that's what an argument is fundamentally about. An argument, supplying an argument is giving people reasons to think the same thing that you do, right? So you're not just presenting your thoughts to someone and assuming that their inherent attractiveness is going to um, make other people think the same thing. You're trying to give them uh, reasons that will actually compel them to think the same thing as you. And that requires anticipating what their reactions to what you're saying might be um, and giving them hooks that will uh, pull them on board in order. And that's all pretty abstract. So in order to, in order to talk about how an argument works, I want to again, look at a couple examples um, from the same essays that we looked at earlier. Um, so in both of these cases, uh, both of the examples that I want to look at are what I think is a crucial point in every argument. The point where um, you as an author anticipate someone's objection, right? You anticipate why someone might like disagree with you and you acknowledge that objection. You acknowledge the reason they might have to disagree with you and then show them that that reason doesn't hold or that their objection um, evaporates upon closer scrutiny, right? So the first example is from the, the Callicles essay. Um, so I'll read the passage. In, this, in the dialogue, Callicles does not respond well to Socrates. So remember, the thesis of this essay was that Callicles' argument in the Gorgias was a compelling one, that Callicles' own thesis was a, a, a strong one and, uh, and important and worth defending. So here's the, the, the objection that's arising. In the dialogue, Callicles does not respond well to Socrates. He claims that the requirement of self-control in laws only demonstrates the jealousy of the many who, unable to be entirely free, decide that the ruler should not be free either. It does not demonstrate an actual desire of the people for self-restraint in themselves and their ruler. This is his most interesting attempt at refuting Socrates, but it is abandoned during the argumentation, and they do not directly come back to it. He quickly becomes flustered, which happens to many of Socrates' interlocutors, and he yields to the objection. I will distance myself from Callicles' failed attempt at refuting Socrates and show that had he remained composed, he could have responded in a different way. Right? So this is a great... I think this is a great setup for considering an objection. Uh, like, and there's something I think inherently compelling about this. And it's this, this author wants to defend Callicles' thesis. But obviously, if you read the Gorgias, um, Socrates ends up, you know, sort of defeating Callicles, right? So if you're going to defend Callicles' thesis, 
you've got to deal with that, right? You've got to, you've got to say, well, yes, I know that Callicles sort of shut up and ended up going along with Socrates and felt refuted and ashamed um, by Socrates, but he shouldn't have. He actually had a stronger case than he thought he did, right? So you have to, like, there's something, I think there's something intuitive and compelling about that. Um, it's an obvious objection. And, and so you have to de do something with it. And so this, this author is saying, yes, Callicles screwed up. Uh, he had a strong thesis, but he let Socrates sort of cow him into abandoning something, uh, a line of argument that he should have pursued further. And then we'll see how, how this author does this. The author agrees with Callicles, but wants to strengthen Callicles' own argument, wants to supply something for Callicles that Callicles was not able to supply for himself. Right? So what does, what does this author provide? Well, it's actually quite a complicated um, little argument that the, that the author of this paper provides for Callicles. Um, and I won't go through it in super close detail here. You're welcome to look at the example essay um, and see for yourself. But the, the author says, you know, um, uh, Callicles thinks that a worthy man is a man who has intelligence about the affairs of the city. Um, it follows from that, that a worthy man will know what is good and what is bad for the city. Um, seems to follow from that, that he knows which pleasures are to be pursued and which are to be avoided. Um, knowing which pleasures are good, the worthy man would develop appetites only for those. For according to Socrates himself, no one willingly does anything unjust. And then this is the kicker. Well, if that's all true, then the worthy man does not need self-control. Since as a healthy man can eat and drink as he wants, and he quotes, or the, this author um, cites Socrates' own claims in that regard, a just soul can indulge in all the pleasures it desires. Okay. Part of what makes this effective is that it utilizes things that Socrates himself says, right? Um, that a just person, uh, well, uh, so uh, no one willingly does anything unjust, right? No one willingly does anything bad. And a, a, a healthy person can eat and drink as he wants because a, a healthy person's desires themselves are healthy, right? Um, so this is, a, this is a, a lovely little, I think this is a lovely little bit of argumentation, right? It supplies something to Callicles. The materials for it were there in the, in the dialogue, um, and so you can sort of imagine this author having stepped into the dialogue and taken up Callicles' argument and pressed it further than Callicles himself was able to, right? And I think there's a good claim here that, you know, Socrates would have to take this very seriously because it uses Socrates' own premises against him, right? Let's look at the other example quickly. So the, you'll remember the second, uh, the second paper is one that wants to defend the claim that oh, that the Republic is a purely ethical work, right? And that the city-soul analogy is really all about the soul um, um, and doesn't have political lessons um, intrinsically. That's not the point of the of the the essay, of the analogy. 
the author of this paper um, recognizes that that thesis is going to run into objections. So the author says, skeptics of this argument might ask, right? If the Republic is primarily apolitical, why does Socrates embark on so many lengthy specifics of the ideal city? For example, in book five, Socrates embarks on a long discussion of the role of women in the guardianship and communal living arrangements. He concludes book five with the suggestion that his ideal city would only function if ruled by philosopher kings, such that within the city, political power and philosophy coincide, right? So it seems obvious, Socrates does offer political contributions, right? So here, the, just to break this down, right? The, the author supplies an objection to their own thesis, right? And substantiates that objection right away by pointing to things in the text that would um, you know, give you reasons to take the objection seriously. Okay. Having done this, then the author um, responds to the objection. I've, I've cut out a little bit here in order to get to the meat of the, the rejoinder. Actually, this is all just about the ruler's souls, right? Um, although politics and the functioning of the state are discussed in the Republic, right? So acknowledging the basis of the objection, um, saying, yes, you're right. You know, you concede something to the objector. But those political um, lessons are only byproducts of Socrates putting his definition of justice onto the rulers and exploring how this would manifest itself. In other words, I mean, this isn't super clearly worded, but I think the, what, the, what the author of this paper is arguing is that um, Socrates um, is only concerned about ethics and the state of the soul primarily, um, and in, in the first instance, and insofar as there are political lessons, they're only the lessons that flow from what would happen if someone with a disordered soul had political power. Um, and so the 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 political lessons are really just applications of the ethical lessons, right? So this, this is a way of explaining away all of the evidence that the objector um, would have pointed to, right? The, the objector points to all of these political lessons in the, in the dialogue, and the, this author says, yes, but in every case, these are just the political consequences of ethical failures. So uh, in amongst the rulers. So really Socrates is just concerned about ethics um, and politics is only this second order um, set of, of concerns. The, the reason I wanted to go through those examples is again, just to show you that the, what both of those um, paper authors did, what both of those students did well, I think, is anticipate that their reader might not be thinking exactly the same thing as them. Uh, they see what their reader might be thinking instead. And they give that reader some acknowledgement. They say, look, I can see the reasons why on the basis of the text, you would think what you're thinking. But here, let me show you why those very things that you're thinking about are actually um, um, reasons to, or we can dismiss them, or their reasons to think what I think instead, they've been misinterpreted, etc. So you're, you're reaching out to your reader, 
um, acknowledging where they're coming from and then trying to get them on board with you. Okay, we're coming near the end here now. Um, so uh, the the next thing I want to talk about is the like the other thing that the other really important thing um, about evaluating essays is that I I try to evaluate you know how well does this author understand the texts or the arguments that they're responding to. In other words, does the does the essay give me a defensible and explicitly justified understanding of the text that it's analyzing? Right? Does the paper, you know, does it consider all the relevant portions of the text, or does it, you know, neglect crucial passages that confirm or challenge its argument? Right? Um, I, you know, I want to see that you know your way around the text, right? Um, and know how to talk about every part of the text that's relevant to your argument. Does the paper give textual evidence to support its claims about the authors, right? Um, so I, I want, you know, this is important for citation stuff, but like there should be citations for all of your you know, paraphrases, right? Not not just for not just for quotations, right? Should point to the text whenever it's the reason for you saying something. Um, uh, one important clarification. So I say at the top of this, right? Does the paper show a defensible and explicitly justified understanding of the text? Notice, I don't say correct, right? When I'm evaluating your understanding of the text that you're talking about, my question is never, is this person right? Um, your understanding of something can be wrong, uh, but it can't be right. So I want to explain what I mean by that. Um, it's one of the lovely things about Theory, but I think it, I think it, I think this applies to empirical political science too, right? That um, it you can find things that are wrong with a particular explanation. You can be like, well, this is this explanation clearly doesn't work, but you can't say definitively that a particular explanation or understanding does work. All you can say is that it's compelling and that it's strongly supported by the evidence. Okay. That's the actual opposite of wrong. The opposite of wrong is not right. The opposite of wrong is compelling and strongly supported by the evidence. Right. Look at all of the evidence that's available and try to and show how it supports the position that you're taking. Okay. Finally, mechanics. I'm not going to talk about mechanics because it's boring to talk about, but uh, there's some stuff about mechanics uh, up there. Um, what I do want to close with is a, is a quote, um, a quote from me. Uh, so what this is related to like, I don't want, I'm not going to evaluate your essays um, as to whether they're right or not. Um, I'm going to evaluate them as to how well you use the evidence and how compelling your argument is. I'm also not going to evaluate them according to how smart they are, right? Um, like intelligence is not a thing that you have or do not have. Um, rather, intelligence is incremental, 
That means that you're going to be smarter the harder you work. Um, the more you do, the more you read, the more you write, the more you think about what you're reading and writing, and the more you talk about what you're reading, writing, and thinking, the more you're going to embody and perform the qualities of intelligence. Um, and that that means that um, I, like it's just a, a word of encouragement to you to, um, I, I know that this term um, and this time in the world is a very uh, challenging one. Um, and many of us uh, feel, you know, isolated and sort of discombobulated by the state of things. Um, I, I want to encourage you to do a little bit of work all the time on this essay um, and to share your thoughts with your group member, your peers um, as much as possible, because the more you do that, the more uh, notes you take, the more time you spend in small increments writing and thinking about these things, um, the better, um, the better your, the final result is going to be. Okay. So that's the end of what I wanted to speak at you. Does anybody have any um, questions? And they don't have to be about the presentation necessarily. They could be about, uh, you know, anything that's been bugging you about the, the portfolios. There's one question in chat. Question is, does the draft require a proper bibliography or just citations? No. Absolutely. It does not require a proper bibliography. Like the bibliography is like, that's something you put on the final product, uh, but it's not something that you need to need to worry about right now. Um, uh, yeah, it's do um, like, generally speaking, I think uh, the, the, the norm uh, on the syllabus is that things are due at the um, at class time. Um, so, um, but I think it's reasonable to say, um, just get it in by midnight on the on the 29th um, and and that will be that will be that. Uh, a second question in the chat is to submit the drafts, do we just copy the Google Doc link and send it to our groups? Yes, that's exactly what you do. Um, make it uh, if you can, uh, you know try to make it so that um, people can comment on um, the you don't have to give them editing. Uh, Powers, but make it so that they can leave you leave you comments because uh, that will that will be helpful. Um, third question: uh, Since the draft won't be complete, do we still need a shorter version of the conclusion and the main paragraphs? No, not necessarily. Like, um, I mean, people can approach these drafts in different ways. Different different people have different thought processes. Um, I do think you should, you know, take a stab at um, at like the intro, the thing about the intro and conclusion is that they're sort of, they're attempts to condense the whole essay into a few sentences. They're sort of like abstracts for the whole essay. So I want you to, you know, like that's a useful exercise. Um, you should not be committed to anything you write in those, in those draft uh, intros and conclusions, but I think it's a useful exercise. But I, but again, it's not required. Another question. So um, if our essay is about a concept, should our thesis take a stand about the given definition in the book? Um, okay, so if our, I'm gonna need a little clarification on that question actually. Um, I, if the 
essay is because you could take your thesis, your essay could be about a concept in a number of different ways. You might be saying, okay, here is like, there is this kind of confusing concept in Plato. And what I'm going to do in this essay is I'm going to explain um, how I think we ought to understand this concept. Um, that is going to, if, if that concept is, is defined in the book um, that you're responding to, right, or that you're basing yourself in, then you're going to have to explain why either the definition given is inadequate or confusing or um, not actually the best way of understanding things or, you know, something like that, right? You're going you're gonna to have to say, look, here's what I'm offering you that you're not going to get just by reading The Republic or just by, you know, opening this page of, um, of the politics or something like that. Um, so I guess in that sense, if there's, if there's a definition that's in there, then um, you have, you're going to have to take account of that and explain what you're adding to that, right? What, what is it that you're giving us that's not already there? Um, there's no requirement for any additional sources. You don't have to have any additional sources whatsoever. Um, um, obviously, any additional sources that you consult should be in your bibliography, uh, but there's no requirement um, to go beyond the course texts. Um, another question. Um, can we cite from the lectures too, or just the book itself? Uh, you can cite from the lectures. I'm generally uncomfortable being sort of the an authority on these things in the sense that my lectures are not themselves, you know, published essays on these things, right? So um, I, you can cite my lectures. I'm generally not encouraging of it. I certainly don't want you to think that by citing me back to myself that you are, um, you know, getting some leg up. I don't, I don't want to hear my own thoughts uh, in these essays. I want to hear your thoughts. Um, uh, and I don't generally think that, um, I don't want to be thought of as um, my lectures having been authoritative texts of commentary on these things. Like they're, they're starting points. Um, you can you can do it, but I wouldn't encourage it. I mean, this is why I said what I said at the end. Um, getting all getting your thoughts down on paper once, having people respond to them, and then having to like redo them, rework through them, um, I think is is an incredibly helpful exercise. It's it's ninety percent of what I do as an academic is trying thoughts out getting criticized for them, revising them, trying to figure out better ways of dealing with objections and so forth, right? The, the process of revision is so central to uh, the process of, of writing and of research um, as an academic. And so that's sort of what I want you to do is just to, to practice that. Okay, one more question about originality. So it's likely that some scholar somewhere has probably made a similar argument I'm making before. Even though I'm independently generating my essay, how should I approach this? Is it okay if I don't consult even other sources, even if there is likely relevant literature out there? Yes, it's absolutely okay if you don't consult other sources. 
I'm not worried about you being completely original. Um, and I'm not worried about you um, consulting every relevant source. I want you to write something independent about um, the, the thing that you've chosen. Um, if there is, if you're struggling with something um, and I think that there is something out there that might help you work through it, I'll suggest it to you. Um, but uh, you don't need to worry about originality um, and, and you don't need to worry about consulting uh, other sources um, or all of the relevant literature. Like this is not, this is, this is a 300 level class. This is not uh, an honor seminar. This is not, you're writing an, uh, an essay that um, is not a research essay. Okay. Uh, one more. Um, how can we make sure that we understand the passage that we're using? Uh, well, you can only do the same thing that I do, which is you can only, all you can do is, um, you know, formulate a hypothesis about the, the passage, right? Like, I think this is how um, I understand it. And then, you know, catalog the evidence, right? Like, why is it that I think this? Well, here's the evidence here. This is, there's this bit of evidence here. There's this bit of evidence here. These are the things that support my hypothesis. Now, at the draft stage, that's probably about as far as you go. But in general, in any form of inquiry, um, the, the really tricky part is the next step. And this is something that I'll ask you to do um, before you turn in the final thing, which is now after you've you know, said, look, here's all of the evidence for my interpretation, then you need to start looking around for the evidence against your interpretation. Right. You need to look for everything that is an awkward fit with your interpretation. You need to look for the evidence that we might indicate some other understanding of what uh, is written on the page. Right. Oh, maybe this points out that there's this other interpretation that's possible. That's that's the harder thing. You look for disconfirming evidence. You don't need to do that yet. Okay, like I said, right, right now, like this is just a draft. It's enough to say, look, I've got evidence for what it is I'm saying. Before you do the final thing, though, I am going to ask you to look around for disconfirming evidence. Um, look for the look for the hard bits of text, the things that you kind of wish weren't there, um, and then deal with those, right? Because it's only if you can overcome the disconfirming evidence, the apparently disconfirming evidence, that um, you'll know that you have a really strong interpretation. Okay. Like I said, the opposite of a, a like you can tell when your when your understanding is wrong um, because you'll encounter evidence that you're like, oh, well, it's just impossible to square this evidence with the interpretation I've been working with up to now. I need to revise. Um, but you can never get to the point of confirmation. You're never going to get to the point of being like, oh, this is the right interpretation. All you can, the furthest you can get is say, this is um, consistent with and supported by all the available evidence and um, the evidence that seems to tell against it. 
I have reasons, I have these reasons for understanding in this following way, um, such that it's con consistent with or compatible with uh, the understanding that I'm advancing. Does that make sense? Um, someone asked, uh, do we need stronger Greek knowledge to gather the evidence? Um, if this were a research paper, if you, this were a graduate class, then you know Greek knowledge would certainly help. Um, but uh, but no, um, I, like I'm not I'm not evaluating anybody on uh, you know if if uh, if something is hidden in the Greek, um, then it's beyond your uh, you know it's beyond your access. That's fine. It's not a, you're not going to be evaluated on that basis. Never mind. There's one more question. Once we've found all of our evidence and start to tackle the disconfirming evidence and objections to our argument, but find out that the objections outweigh our own rebuttal, is there a way out? Yes, there is. It's very convenient. What you do is you switch sides, right? Uh, that is, you say, oh, well, everything that I'm like, I thought I had a thesis and then I'm... Uh, I, but actually now I've looked at all of this disconfirming evidence. And in fact, um, my, my original uh, thesis was wrong. So then your original thesis becomes the objection, right? That becomes the thing that you're like, look, it might appear that Plato means this, but that explanation won't work for all of the reasons that I've discovered in the course of my investigation, right? One of the worst things you can do as a scholar and as an investigator is get so wedded to your hypothesis that you stick to it in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, right? One of the things, I mean, that's what, that's what learning is about. Learning is, and, and being a scholar and studying is about, you know, having a hypothesis and going out there and being willing to change your mind um, and and to go uh, and end up arguing against your past self um, if if the evidence uh, indicates that that's the right way to go. If anybody has any further questions about this uh, uh, about the draft, you know, just drop them in the Slack. Um, you can just put them in the portfolio uh, channel, and I'll answer them there. Um, thank you all for coming, and um, we will reconvene on Thursday to talk about book two and three of uh, the politics.